Hey, I'm Stuart McLeod, CEO and co-founder of Carbon. Welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with the world's top accounting leaders. Today, I'm joined by Megan Blair, owner and founder of Fogged In Bookkeeping. Megan is an ambitious entrepreneur with expansive business experience and cattle stations in Australia. She launched Fogged In Bookkeeping as a single mother and grew up by 800% in the last five years. She is passionate about technology, automation, and elevating bookkeeping as a career choice in an industry. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, Megan Blair. Megan Blair, welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Now, Fogged In Bookkeeping, let's start there. It must be in San Francisco, right? <laughs> no, it's in the east coast of Massachusetts in an island called Nantucket. Um, they refer to Nantucket as the Grey Lady. Super foggy place on the east coast. But people in San Francisco and Massachusetts are the only one that get my joke. <laughs> when we first arrived in, um, in the United States, we lived in San Francisco. And uh, we not long after, we moved to Sausalito. And those who were... Uh, have not lived in in sort of the shores of the San Francisco Bay, probably are not aware of the bridge foghorn that goes off every 18 seconds <laughs> <laughs> and takes some getting used to, I would say. I was, we were, the first few nights we were like, fuck, what is this? <laughs> how, how are we ever going to get some sleep with this thing going on? <laughs> We can hear one from our house, and we can also hear the ferry horn that goes off when mm -hmm, it leaves the mm -hmm, harbor. Mm -hmm. So I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> Once you're there for a while, it's kind of uh, reassuring. It's soothing, right? But um, mm -hmm. it does take some time. Uh, living in in Melbourne, we're near the, at the tram depot, and uh, you know when it was four thirty six because those big old things would. Uh, <laughs> would roll out of the depot down the road. <laughs> and uh, that took some getting used to as well. But uh, living up here in um, where we are now, there are no such noises apart from the the snow clearing machinery when it snows overnight. <laughs> <laughs> where was home before California? Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. We grew up there, both my wife and I, and, the t and two of our three kids were born in Melbourne. <laughs> I lived in Darwin for a while. Oh, wow. Actually, that's aggrandizing. I lived in Catherine. Oh, wow. Okay. Even, all right. <laughs> so Melbourne to Catherine is probably further apart than Nantucket to Tahoe for a start. <laughs> like, uh -huh. It's a fucking long way. <laughs> and what took you to that part of, well, Australia for a start and that part of the world? I was an exchange student in high school. And they put everybody on the plane. They dropped most people off in Sydney. A few people went to Melbourne. A few people went to Brisbane. And then they're like, but you, Megan, you're flying to Darwin. And then a family's going to pick you up wow. and drive you to Catherine. And you're going to live on a cattle station. <laughs> I learned to ride horses, wow. deliver cows, inoculate animals. I've been in a rodeo. It's an experience there. Well, Darwin to Catherine, that's still like a day, isn't it? Like that's that's still a long way. It's like four or five hours, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it would be, and not, not much bitumen. Let me congratulate on your pronunciation of Brisbane, not Brisbane, so you've got, you've got that <laughs> bit down. Well done. <laughs> and 
Living on a cattle station in Catherine. Okay, so probably a small one like 20,000 square kilometres or something. <laughs> real, real <laughs> tiny. Yeah, the, the stations I spent time on were actually outside of Catherine, closer to Alice Springs, on the way to Uluru. Mm. Yeah, they were out there. Road trains, kangaroos, dingoes, the whole, the whole nine. There you go. That would have been pretty formative experience for a for a late high school student living out in the middle of fucking nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was sixteen years old. I don't think I even had an American driver's license yeah. <laughs> yet. The Aboriginal population, in Catherine's pretty big, so that was something I had never experienced as an American kid. Stepping into just the remoteness of it, right? Like I, yeah, exactly. Who, who lives someplace where you go to the grocery store once a month and you buy your beer by the pallet? Well, that's just for the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gave me like a very different appreciation of agricultural food systems. And I moved there as a vegetarian. I did not come home a vegetarian. Yeah. And culture, like very different culture from America. Oh, yeah. Well, very different culture even in Australia, right? Like that's about as raw and as hardworking as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> what was the biggest lesson you think? Oh, lessons, I don't know. I learned I didn't want to be a vet. I moved there thinking I wanted to be a vet. Okay, that's good. And when the flying vet, she was delivering a baby calf, she had her arm up inside the animal and the cow mm -hmm. rolled over and spiral fractured her arm. And in the moment, I was Ow. like, this is not, yeah, no, not for me. A lifetime of accounting is in my future. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a bit different vet out there. It's not, it's not the domestic cat every, in and out every day. <laughs> I think what I really learned in all seriousness is an appreciation for culture and that cultures aren't better or worse. They're just different. And if you go into those kinds mm. of things without judgment, just to observe and understand goes a long way. Mm. Yeah, look, the appreciation... Of the, the, I'm sure the vastness must have just, there the must have been a moment where it just strikes you like it's, there is nothing, absolutely nothing out there. For like days. And to move there, I'd lived and worked on farms before my family owned like a small produce farm in America, but the scale of it, like you could ride for days and still be on the same property. Yeah, the need for self-reliance in those communities. The kids in the households I lived in did School of the Air. So they were homes COVID-style homeschooling long before. <laughs> before before any before Google Classroom existed. <laughs> yeah, and it is. It's wildly big. Yeah, wow. Well, okay, so I, I, I mean, obviously, I grew up very domesticated, but School of the Air is literally that. It's UHF radio. <laughs> And the kids are, are thousands of kilometres apart and the teacher is in, you know, perhaps Alice Springs or Darwin or something like that. And I think when I lived there, probably it was like right on the verge of email was, I'm old, email was just starting <laughs> no. to be a thing, <laughs> yeah. right? So yeah. it was like, if you had a computer, it was dial up internet. Like, so that just, oh, yeah. there wasn't really a thing yet. If households had a computer, it was because the family was doing uh, National Weather Service reporting of yeah. some kind. Yeah. No email, no computer, no Twitter, no, nada. No. Well, that might be the same. We might be full circle <laughs> soon. <laughs> Have you been back to Australia since? 
have not been back to Australia since. That is a very long flight. I, the younger me knew that life in, you know, post high school would get busy. And that was my shot to sort of really do something fun and amazing like that. And it, I proved to be right between kids and businesses, like going and living someplace for a couple of months. That's harder now. Although I think we're maybe like on the other, the other turn of that, right? Like COVID, remote work, more acceptable, more people sort of living places longer term, not just popping in and out on vacation, but really settling into places and being a part of those communities. There you go. Is it that may, maybe there's a cattle station in, in Catherine in your future. <laughs> you can... <laughs> I would go back in a heartbeat. <laughs> how, how many kids have you got? How, how, how old are Two. They? My kids are 20 and 15. Right. Okay. Well, there you go. Does the fifteen-year-old know that that he or she is about to go to a cattle station? <laughs> if anybody was going to be a good sport about it, he would. He's mm. fifteen years old. He loves animals. Loves farms. He like if anybody's going to do it, he would. My older one, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's amazing. Um, so where you are on the east coast, what kind of community and and clients? do you encounter uh, through fogged in bookkeeping? Yeah, so we serve clients nationally. We're an all remote firm. Mm -hmm. Our team's been remote for 10 years. COVID was not the start of something new for us. But the clients we encounter here are generally tied to Nantucket in some way. So Nantucket's this like amazingly funny little ecosystem unto itself. So we're physically separated from the mainland by 30 miles of water. You get some geographical exclusivity and then you get some economic exclusivity because the, you know, and Nantucket has a reputation for the one percenters, the CEO hangout, playground of the wealthy, similar to the Hamptons and some other places in the US, right? But Nantucket, interestingly, also has this like amazingly diverse population. My son, as a white male, is in the minority in his high school. So they're a majority-minority high school. 40% of the students in our public high school would qualify for free lunch programs and things. So Nantucket is not this exclusive playground of the rich people perceive Mm. it to be. And that trickles down into the business community. So Mm. you get this ecosystem here for Fogged In of really cool startups that get funded by our visitors and this wealthy population creates opportunity but you get a lot of these small town businesses whether they be restaurants you know hotels landscaping companies what have you so we get this nice balance my initial mentors were CEOs of publicly traded companies like Exxon and Sotheby's, right? <laughs> and some of my first clients were HVAC companies, electricians, and landscapers. Yep. So yeah, so here on the east, this little outpost on the east coast, it, you get this real coming together of some wild influences. And and what 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 are the tourist seasons? Is is it a summer playground? <laughs> it is a summer playground. It gets real quiet here in the winter. So you see a population flux from the published population is probably 15,000 tops in the winter to like 85,000 peak summer. That happens real fast. And it's the who's who from around the world. (laughs) And so the economics that that creates for small businesses Mm -hmm. is interesting. Winter cash flow gets really important. Seasonal business management, financials get really (laughs) important really quick. So it's been a very interesting place to do the work we do, 
We have very sophisticated investor agreements, advisory boards. Um, well, Megan, that's quite interesting because we, we live in a not dissimilar town. I was just looking up our population. I think we're pretty similar. You're uh, Nantucket. Uh, so says Wikipedia, the source of all things truth, right? Is eleven thousand. We're we're nearly nine thousand, and yeah, July four. We I wouldn't be surprised if we grow to about eighty thousand. But we also have a winter economy. Our, our skiing, as well. Um, there's seven resorts sort of within an hour or so of where we are, which kind of helps. So I I relate to. The, the type of thing that you're describing. And so here, and I'll ask you if you've experienced the same thing, sort of particularly after COVID, labour in the businesses that keep the uh, the locals fed and groomed <laughs> and watered has been a significant challenge here. Is that the same for you? It has. So before COVID, there were cracks in the dam around housing Mm. wage practices, labor supply, all different things that I think affect America in general. But when you're an isolated community where people can't commute from the next town over, that gets magnified. COVID blew that up. Food security becomes so crucial. The housing market collapses. Getting labor becomes incredibly difficult, especially in service-based industries where we saw the highest attrition. So food service you know, getting people to work back up house, incredibly difficult. And, you know, PPP, ERC, whatever that stuff is, goes a ways, but it really just, you need bodies. And that got incredibly difficult. And you've got to adapt. Like we're watching businesses across the world try to adapt to the great attrition or, you know, whatever you want to call that. But here, it just got wildly lopsided. So I would spend, you know, the the first part of the week processing payroll for employees that come through our payroll company. And I'm looking at what people are making. And for a long time, I've been like, you know, how does anybody live on that? That's just, especially someplace here where the cost of living is so high. So we're on par with a New York City or a San Francisco, right? And then I volunteer in the food pantry on Thursdays. And you're seeing a lot of those same people coming through the door because the cost of living and the wage just don't line up. And that's not a criticism of any individual business. It's just the the reality of these like high net worth, super expensive communities where housing is a struggle. And so, you know, instead of maybe 30% of, you know, someone's wages going to their housing, they're putting, you know, 70, 80% of their wages into their housing. And I think it's an interesting opportunity for the accounting community to get involved in those conversations and start working with their clients to sort of figure that out. Ian had a really great webinar yesterday with Carbon around... That's not like him. (laughs) (laughs) Around carbon credit sustainability metrics and building those into our accounting processes and starting to be a part, you know, building that into our advisory practices and that's something we actually started about a year ago with our clients, um, not the carbon part in particular, but more human capital metrics and social responsibility and community sustainability metrics. And I think that's going to be really important for accounting practices. A little bit of what I'm focused on is trying to create some playbooks for that. 
And how do you participate in the solution rather than being frustrated, tired, and disillusioned yeah. by the problem? Yeah. Oh, God. It's, it's so easy to be the latter at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't know. I think the accounting community, like, we keep talking about moving into advisory as accountants, right? Um, we have the ear of the clients. We're talking to them about their money. Why not be a part of the conversation around you don't have to wait around for minimum wage law to change to change how you compensate people. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's so, I'm sure it's so present, you know, where you are, like it's, it's such a microcosm of of what's happening everywhere, but it's probably amplified by your geographical isolation and your seasonality, right? Like the income source during winter is need, needs to be replaced. <laughs> finish a sentence the three months of summer are basically the economic windfall for the year and and you've got to manage that and you've got to plan for that and you've got to try and extrapolate the the best you can during those months it's so frustrating for restaurants that were like i see around here you know we we went i went had dinner with a a beer with a mate last night and it's and they serve six people you know because we're in shoulder season on a tuesday right and you, you can't like I, I just thank you for being open for a start, <laughs> but it must be so frustrating. You know, you, you get to say in your case, you know, the say the Friday before July four or something, and you, you've got a three hour wait line at a nice restaurant, and they just can't, they physically can't get the revenue through the door and out and and through the economy as as fast as they'd like. It it it's, it's just miss this issue only gets worse and worse. So. Anyway, there you go. I don't know. I don't know how to fix that bit. <laughs> yeah, you've got, you know, essentially 16 to 20 weeks of core season. Yeah. If you're managing your financials like so many businesses do by waiting for the tax return prep, if you've had a bad season and you don't know till January, you're done. Right? So you, lifetime financials are critical. We're looking at labor costs and food costs with a restaurant every week, right? And yeah, your your biggest constraint is what can that kitchen pump out? And that's a human problem, not a friolator problem. And it's probably discouraging for service entrepreneurs or hospitality entrepreneurs, right? Just like perhaps those that, that grew up in places like yours and are like come home and, and be part of the area again. And it's like, oh, you know, do I, am I really going to have to sort of go through this every year? It's it's It can be discouraging, can be difficult. I think it weeds out people that aren't truly committed to a real love, right, of food and hospitality. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing, right? <laughs> so the people that you are left with don't fool around. They really love what they do. They love the people they work with. They love the food and beverage industry. The restaurant business around here creates like almost a sense of second family. So when, you know, someone gets sick or someone passes away, there's this coming together of that community in a way that I don't think you see in a lot of other other industries and other places. So that, you know, there's upside to it. And then you've got folks in this community that are really working hard on the food security problem, like as a community. And that is going to involve your agriculture, right? It's going to involve your food beverage industry, and it's going to involve the general public and the food insecure. And it's going to involve the nonprofits, so traditional like food pantries, food distribution organizations. And so COVID brought that stuff to the forefront. And now you've got like sort of this critical mass of issues that's actually motivating people 
for change and for problem solving. So there's an organization here called Process First, and they're working hard to create data integrations off the back end of point of sale systems, like how much ingredient are you using? When are you using it? What's profitable for you? And how to do that in a light touch way so you're not like going into a spreadsheet. And they're pairing up also with community service organizations and the farmers to create this data web that is just like nothing I had ever seen before. And that came out of COVID problem. And so they're able to share data in secure and private ways that allow far them to have conversations with farmers and say, like, listen, the restaurant community needs 10,000 pounds of onions and here's when they need it so that we're not all growing the same thing at the same time. Right. And we're creating those that knowledge sharing, but also then when there's excess food, how do you get that back into the community without asking the farmer to just give it all away? That's fascinating. Is, is it, that's a local idea, is it? It is. It's a company out of Boston. One of the founders yeah. came here during COVID. Oh, cool. got, you know, he, he family ties to the island, got really involved in the problem and is staying here and solving the problem. But they're using Nantucket as a testing ground. It's easy to control and measure, easier, yes. <laughs> easier to control and measure what's here because you can... What's there only goes in and out on the ferry. Yeah, there's, no, there's not even a bridge, right? <laughs> yeah. So they're looking to take it as a model and bring it other places because other places cool. have the same problem. And that's been an awesome project to work on because app developers don't always understand accountant brain or business owner brain. What will the chef actually do? How often will people actually count inventory? That kind of thing. Amazing. And, and what took you to Nantucket then? Are, are you, is that uh, your, your upbringing? <laughs> my grandparents had a summer home here. I moved here like February, my senior year of high school. My mom said, you know, make, after, after Catherine, you're going to, you're going to make, yeah, you're going to make some better money waitressing there than you will at home, go earn some money for college. And I came and I did leave and go to college and I didn't like it very much. And I came back here. I learned very quickly that uh, waitressing was not for me. <laughs> was, was there a particular incident? Yeah, I, um, I got fired <laughs> when I told he was a Senator at the time he later became Secretary of State, John Kerry that it didn't matter who he was, the table was occupied and he couldn't have it. And uh, that's good advice. <laughs> I learned some lessons in that about customer service, but also about my inability to work front of house. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were right. <laughs> he, there's, there's worse senators than then, though. <laughs> <laughs> and so your waitressing career was uh, limited. <laughs> was cut short pretty quickly. The GM <laughs> had me come nanny for his kids instead. Well, there you, there you go. There's, yeah. I don't know. Nantucket's a hard place to leave. Right. Yeah. It's a unique community. Great place to raise kids by the sounds of it. It's a hard place to raise kids. So it's isolated. It's small in its geography and what your kids get to experience. So you have to make a real concerted effort to get them out into a bigger world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My daughter was probably 17 and we were in San Francisco and we let the kids pick the restaurant and we looked at the kids and we're like, okay, how do we get there? And she's like, I don't know. We're like, <laughs> she hadn't been any place where she was in the driver's seat enough that she needed to figure out how to get from point A to point B because her whole life, she either knew where she was going or she was sitting, you know, in the back seat of the car. Yeah. So at 17, she had to figure out how to use That's Google Maps. Better, better late than never. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so there's like, for raising kids, 
there's this wild diversity. I think there's something like 12 languages spoken in our kids' high school, you know, and this amazingly beautiful natural place. There's opportunity for, you know, fishing and being outdoors and beaches and that kind of thing. But it's tough in that, you know, it can't be everything to everybody. You just don't have the resources available to you in a, as, like you would in a bigger metropolitan area that's isolated. Yep. And so let, let's talk about Fogged Inn a little bit. It, it's it, being remote. I assume not everybody is on the island. <laughs> yeah. So founded this business about 21 years ago. We were an in-person firm. Started just me, add an employee, add an employee, rent an office, grow. And about 10 years ago, we had our first employee. My husband's retiring. She says to me, you know, we want to be in Florida. We own a home there. I'm like, great. He can retire all he wants. You're gold. I'm not <laughs> letting you leave. She's still with us, by the way. Oh, how nice. <laughs> is your is husband still retired? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And we, we had built a rapport in the office. So when she went remote, I got to make some mistakes, I'm sure, and figure out how, how to manage a remote firm. And then as the years went on, it just made more and more sense. It was cost effective. I had a selection from bigger pool because being 30 miles out at sea, I was forced to be resourceful about my staff. And then in turn, once you're remote, why not have remote customers? So the constraint forced innovation that I think put us ahead of the curve on sort of the remote bit of accounting. Mm, mm, mm. So is there anybody else on the island or just you? Just me now. Yep, yep. I'm a solo show here. We sort we sent our last local employee home, you know, March 2020 and never looked back. We have local customers that will sometimes pop by the office. But, yeah, just me here now. We've, we have staff in mostly Oregon, mainland, Massachusetts, and Florida now. And obviously you have some local clients. What um, What's sort of the growth profile? You're happy with sort of how you're traveling? Yeah. So years ago, we got involved with a family office out of the Bay Area. So he had been CEO of a very large name recognizable tech firm. They had interests here on the island. We got involved with one of those interests and sort of started dipping our toe in this multifamily office idea. And so our growth and our client profile since then has really come from those sorts of relationships. So we will work with a high net worth individual or a serial entrepreneur or investor who has like finger in multiple things. Maybe they own a tech company and they've got a couple of real estate investments or that kind of thing. And then those folks turn around and they may put some seed money or a round money into a small business or a startup. But a tether of that money is often, we want our K1s on time. So we would really like you to work with Megan and the Fogden team on the financial piece, that way we know our investment's in good hands and you're not going to get derailed by something silly like a, you never enrolled for workman's comp or you know some silly, silly reason businesses get themselves in trouble early. So there's this pumpkin patching effect, right? Or you know, sort of rollover effect of these folks tend to start more businesses. So we get new business that way. But when you get involved in new investor groups, they tend to see what we're doing and say, oh, I want that for myself. I want a personal balance sheet. I want my investments being tracked. I'd like my family bills paid, but I also have this business that needs some accounting. 
And so that's the client profile we've fallen into. A lot of the folks we work with have some sort of a tie to the island. Maybe they have a home here, a business here. They've spent a lot of time here. They've invested in businesses here. And so it's the, it's probably not the typical profile for a bookkeeping firm. You would you're dealing with some sophisticated clients and some sophisticated mechanisms by which they're investing and and their relationships are are obviously very important to them. So that's so congrats on on all the success that you've experienced over your years of business. What's next for you and and the organization, do you think, Megan? We're being acquired. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So COVID was hard. It was hard for me, not from a firm management standpoint, but from what was going on in the world for me. I was like crawling into bed at two o'clock in the afternoon with my laptop. Like, and I, I thought I needed to leave accounting. What I've realized since then is I was burnt out. I didn't need to leave accounting. I love accounting. I love what we do for businesses and the people behind them. What I needed to do was change how I was interacting. So we made some of those changes in the sustainability work that we're doing and sort of helping businesses think about that. I felt like, oh, I'm doing something proactive, moving the ball forward, but I want to focus on that and managing firm insurance policies and toner cartridges wasn't necessarily how I wanted to be spending my time. And <laughs> was, wasn't part of your purpose. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't part of my purpose. And small firms are vulnerable. You know, if your team is six and two people leave at the same time or have a medical emergency at the same time, which became a very real reality during COVID, you're vulnerable. And we felt like the best thing we could do for our team and our clients was to be part of something bigger because it was more stable. And it gave us the opportunity and the resources to really focus on some of the stuff that was going to move the needle forward from a social responsibility and sustainability perspective, just from basic accounting for our clients. And so we are being acquired by a firm called Growth Labs out of Providence, Rhode Island. I am oh, cool. <laughs> enamored with their team and their owner group, and I'm very excited about the move. Two carbon firms. Two carbon <laughs> firms. And that was a big piece of why it worked. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So it's going to allow us to more easily merge systems. My team is already used to that workflow and that technology. I actually reached out to Ian this morning, like, let me tell my story to more people because I just, it's so important. Carbon really saved us during COVID because we did have some folks, some, you know, someone had on our team had their mother passing away. Other people had severe COVID, like people hospitalized and that kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. carbon was what kept us afloat <laughs> for <laughs> about a month at one point. Like everybody had in a way, it was the daily triage of going into carbon and saying like, how, how are we getting through this week? And I don't know how we would have done it without that kind of clarity that carbon created, not to like overplug the product. <laughs> but yeah, it's been a big, big part of our acquisition. So that's what's next. More stability, more resources for our customer and our team. I'm really excited about where we're going. That's very exciting. And um, uh, and and does that mean a little bit of a rest for you perhaps in 2023? <laughs> Probably not. I just don't <laughs> think I'm built that way. <laughs> I think it's a rest in that some of the periphery that comes with firm ownership that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with goes away. 
And I find, you know, that the exhausting level of client contracts or two tools aren't talking to each other properly. And that, you know, ends up being your problem. That goes away. I think I'm energized, but I'm going to probably work harder than ever. (laughs) Transitions aren't easy. One, two, we want to make sure all of our customers are happy and our team is happy in that transition, which I think takes a lot of, a lot of effort. And then I'm taking a role in customer success and it's a new position in growth labs. And I think building that out is probably going to be just as much work as anything I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely a, given that your, you know, the, the, the longevity of the firm and your commitment to your customers, there's, I'm sure that there's a burning desire to make sure that the transition goes smoothly and that everybody is content on the other side. <laughs> We have team and customers that have been with us for more than a decade. Yeah. I have a customer that's been with me at least 15 years, and I was present at the birth of her daughter. Like, (laughs) these are not just strangers on some customer list. That's right. So, yeah, we, I am really trying to do what I think is in everybody's best interest. Hmm. It was not a grab some cash and get out situation at all. Yep. Yep, no, I get it. Well, uh, congratulations on all the success of the firm. And the next chapter is very exciting. (laughs) It is. It is. And thank you for being a wonderful carbon customer. And I'm sure that that will continue. The Growth Labs got you in very safe hands with the Growth Labs team. They're a fantastic group. And um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, you should should take a little bit of a rest as you successfully complete the next phase. (laughs) We have a planned trip to Quebec City between Christmas and New Year's. It's my little break. It's my like I'm ending this one thing and starting this new thing. That'd be great. (laughs) Well, Megan Blair, thank you for joining the Accounting Leaders podcast and congratulations on all the success of Fogged in Bookkeeping. Thank you for having me and thank you for putting together such a great product in Carbon. It's really made a difference for us. Oh, a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you found this discussion interesting, fun, you'll find lots more to help you run a successful accounting firm at Carbon Magazine. There are more than a thousand free resources there, including guides, articles, templates, webinars, and more. Just head to carbonhq.com/resources. I'd also love it if you could leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know you like this session. We'll be able to keep bringing you more guests for you to learn from and get inspired by. Thanks for joining and see you in the next episode of the Accounting Leaders Podcast.